From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, Sophia Thomas, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on the issues that matter most to NPs and to our patients. Stigma and discrimination continue to affect members of the LGBTQIA community, even within healthcare settings, where they often experience health disparities and barriers to healthcare access. In this podcast episode, nurse practitioners, NPs, Drs. Jason Farley and James Simmons, join us to discuss the importance of inclusivity in primary care and how NPs can provide a holistic healthcare experience that incorporates sexual wellness. Welcome to NP Pulse, Jason and James. I know how incredibly busy both of your schedules are, so I'm so excited that you both took some time to discuss queer sexual health with us today. James, you are a board-certified acute care nurse practitioner and an on-air medical contributor. Please tell us more about yourself and how you came to work in nursing and in media. Thank you. Uh, And first of all, thank you very much to AANP for having me again. I guess I didn't mess up too bad on the last couple of podcasts. I'm really, really excited to be back on behalf of the CDC's Let's Stop HIV Together initiative. Really excited to be here. You're right, I am. I'm an adult gerontology acute care nurse practitioner. Very proud of the gero part as well. That is a lot of my practice. And I currently practice as a hospitalist in a level two trauma center here in LA County. And that is sort of my day job, quote, if you will. But my side hustle, because everyone has one these days, is doing health education in the media and in social media. My my life leading up to becoming a nurse practitioner was in uh, my original degrees in broadcast journalism. And so I worked in television, radio, PR, marketing, lots of that stuff. Then decided, you know what? No, I really do want to be a nurse, actually. So I went back to school, became a nurse, and then a nurse practitioner. But I still had that bug, that itch for media as well. And I was, I thought, well, heck, I'm a nurse practitioner, which means I am perfectly suited to bring those two worlds together in terms of educating the public, as well as lots of appearances on local television and, and cable TV and podcasts and radio and all of that. And so I'm just really excited to represent our profession. And of course, the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign. And today, in particular, talking about something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that's um, queer health and um, HIV. Wonderful. We are so happy to have you back, Dr. Simmons. Dr. Farley, you are returning as well, and we've spoken on a prior podcast. You are an infectious disease nurse epidemiologist and a nurse practitioner in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your nursing journey? 
Absolutely. Well, thanks again to AANP and to the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign. And my career really began in the late 80s, early 90s in nursing school and really thinking about uh, HIV as a social condition and a social disease that impacted what we now are calling and referring to as the queer community. But at the time, it was a slur used against me as one of the queer community um, in, in rural Alabama. And I just had this this sense that what I was learning from school to the pulpit to to you know everyday life just didn't reverberate with me as a young gay man uh, and as an emerging nurse. And so I began to dig deeper, look at it a little bit more critically, and got a wonderful opportunity to meet some fantastic nurse practitioners who really changed my life and my career. The first of which was at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, which was Dr. James Raper. Uh, Jim was a, a lawyer by, by background and training, but also a nurse practitioner, PhD prepared, uh, and the first nurse practitioner practitioner to be tenured in a school of medicine that I'm aware of in the country. Just this powerhouse of thinking about putting the patient at the center of care related to HIV. And he really showed me the, the impact of public health. And that kind of brought me to Johns Hopkins, where I've been practicing as a nurse practitioner on infectious disease division ever since, providing HIV care, PrEP care. And now I run a center called the Center for Infectious Disease and Nursing Innovation. So that's kind of brought it all together and do a lot of research, uh, both in HIV prevention, but also uh, in co-infections, TB, HIV co-infection, and a, a variety of other conditions. Wow, what a journey from rural Alabama to Johns Hopkins. That is so inspiring. You know, some people may be familiar with the acronym LGBTQ or LGBTQIA+, but actually may not be as familiar with the definition of queer. What does the term queer mean? Well, queer was very taboo. And in some, you know, demographics still very much is. We That was a big no-no, right? Big word you did not use. Uh, now I use queer proudly uh, because it's, it's more of a broader term. And in particular, younger generations and other people are thinking about their sexuality differently. So even in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, I go back to like Will and Grace, right? So Will and Jack were gay men in New York and they were gay and that was cool and they helped change the game for lots of gay folks and TV and things like that. Well, a lot of people these days don't just identify as gay. In fact, my research is in a population of, you know, 18 to 35 year old black men who have sex with men. And there's a reason we say black or men who have sex with men. And even that language is sort of becoming outdated because there are cisgender men who have sex with other cisgender men who will never identify as gay or use that word to identify themselves. But they deserve and need the specialized type of care that we provide to a gay population or an LGBTQIA plus population or a queer population, right? So queer is more of an all-encompassing term in terms of sexuality, gender identity, gender expression that encompasses the lesbian, gay, transsexual, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual, and two-spirited, and lots of other folks. It's, a, it's an umbrella term, if you will. I would say I have grown more accustomed to using the word in both professional and personal settings. It's a lot to unpack when we talk about uh, LGBTQIA and try to tell everyone and break that down. And just like, just like James said, it, the, the umbrella term, that being said, because of its history in, you know, growing up in, in rural Alabama, for me personally, it has been a long journey to come to agreement and willingness to accept the, even the use of the term. We are an amazingly diverse group of individuals, and there's no 
when we talk about the queer community in general, we are talking about an extremely wide spectrum of sexualities, of preferences, of, of, of differences in, in lifestyle. And, and we really need to acknowledge that, you know, and be humble that it's hard for the primary care provider in particular to understand all of the various nuances of the community. You know, the evolution of the diversity of sexuality and gender expression has really been um, a complex journey. As you said, there are so many nuances of the community, and I want to learn more. What are some of the unique challenges that you believe queer individuals face when it comes to accessing sexual health services? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, here in Baltimore, uh, there is no directory of, of queer providers, of LGBTQ-friendly providers. You need to know and find someone who's, who knows another person uh, as a primary care provider. Uh, we have lots of lists for specialty care. We have lots of lists for HIV care. We have lots of lists for PrEP services. You know, our website geolocates you to your nearest PrEP provider. Uh, that's all available. But when it comes to I'm in general primary care, I just want to be able to talk about my sexual health as part of my normal, you know, physical health, mental health as part of the overall package. Who's a great provider for me in my location? That list doesn't exist. And so uh, at least here in Baltimore, it doesn't. And I just think that the first thing for access is you have to know who is welcoming. So to me, how to access care and access an LGBTQ friendly provider is our largest barrier at least here in the city of Baltimore. So this is an access to care issue to find appropriate primary care providers for queer individuals and queer patients. So have you seen a difference in the approach to sexual health for queer individuals since you started your healthcare career? This is something that, you know, straight folks and cisgender folks don't have to think about. I, I, I can go into my primary care provider and talk about my partner or... Uh, sex that I may or may not have had and and have a lot less shame or not have the fear that this provider is just going to tell me that they can't help me because they don't agree with my being gay or my being queer or trans or non-binary or whatever. That's something that we live with still in 2023 every single day as queer folks because statistically there are a lot of them who will just refuse you care uh, and, and treat you horribly. And so we already have big time access to healthcare issues in our intentionally marginalized communities like queer communities. And then to have, you know, say, oh, I finally found a provider who's close to me. Let me go to this clinic. And they're like, nope, sorry, can't take care of you. I don't agree with people who are non-binary, right? Like that's just a huge challenge, but that is changing a lot because of conversations that we're having like this. You know, there are institutions uh, and, and it's usually research and, and academia, you know, institutions, but that have centers for LGBTQIA plus care and are doing research on what different aspects, the, the different letters in the alphabet of the queer community need in relationship to their health. I, I, it is changing, but it's changing in places like Los Angeles, where I live, right? So you can go to the UCLA's of the world, the Cedar sinais of the world, even the U, USD Caxton counties and blah, 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 and, and get pretty good queer focused care. But if you are a person of color, particularly black, and you live in the South and you are poor, you are not having access to this stuff, but you are the exact population who needs it the most. So we still have a boatload of work to do. Yeah, I think you've seen, uh, you know, just this huge amount of legislation coming across the country that have, have proven 
you know, that, that the, not only the, the healthcare access, but the lives of LGBTQ populations are in danger across this country. All the way from, you know, when we look at new eight rates of HIV infection among young black uh, same gender loving men, you know, those rates are highest amongst the Southern United States. And yet those are the states preventing uh, access to prevention who in which you know, if you live in a state like, you know, Alabama, you have to go to one of the major metropolitan areas to receive access to, to LGBTQ friendly um, services. And so what we know is that distance to treatment, there's research that say distance to treatment impacts your likelihood to access care. We know that, you know, uh, having a provider who looks, sounds and acts and believes in you as a human being influences your ability to engage in care and stay in care. Um, we know that the primary care provider and just how they respond to any kind of inquiries around sexual health may, may influence the patient's willingness to actually provide you an absolute thorough and comprehensive sexual health review that may, you know, you know, determine how you will, um, you know, manage this patient moving forward. So I think there's so much that we can do in the primary care community to signal that we are a welcoming uh, practice, that we are a welcoming provider, and that we uh, will not place our own values and, and beliefs or judgments on to another human being's life. Well, I've been practicing for 27 years, and I think in general, we are putting more of a focus on sexuality and sexual health, but we still have a long way to go to meet the needs of queer individuals. So you've essentially stated there are challenges and a lack of understanding, and queer individuals continue to face stigma and discrimination in healthcare settings and may not feel comfortable going to clinicians that are not part of their community or accessing healthcare services. You shared a few examples that providers can do to provide a safe and inclusive primary care experience for queer patients. What are some ways that NPs can help provide a safe and inclusive primary care experience? Well, just just remember that we're all in this together, literally, so that it's not just you individually as the provider in the closed room one-on-one, -on -one, but it begins with your receptionist who's ever welcoming the patient into the clinic. It begins with the imaging you have in your clinic. Does it represent you know, a cisgender heterosexual couple or does it have greater diversity? You know, and you know, how can you demonstrate to your um, patient population that you are welcoming in a variety of different ways? So one way privately in the room is to, you know, standardize as part of your either annual exam or more frequently, depending on your practice and the epidemiology of, of various conditions in your setting, um, a part sexual health evaluation as part of just a routine for every single patient across the board. Um, we, we don't shy away from using uh, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction medication when the man comes in at 55 demanding it, and uh, we have a great conversation about uh, his ED, and yet we won't go any farther about who the sexual partners are or, or how often he is having sex without condoms or whether or not he needs an HIV test. I mean, we see that kind of behavior consistently where, oh, okay, erectile dysfunction, I've got a great drug that can treat that. I will, you know, prescribe this. You know, we may do some hormone checks. We may not, depending on the circumstances. And here you go. Have, have a great day. Um, and what we need to do is change the narrative around that. Wonderful. Great. You know, are you, 
you know, are you married? Are you, are you single? Are you having sex with a partner, multiple partners? All those things can help guide how, how you as a primary care provider develop your sexual health and primary care plan for this patient moving forward. And if you don't feel comfortable with taking a thorough sexual history, the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign has some great pointers that you can refer to. Uh, if you just go to the website, you can find all the details you need about taking a thorough uh, sexual health history. And I just want to add to, to what Dr. Farley said. One of the things I hear from patients a lot is that that's not the only thing they want to talk about. One of the things that you can do as a provider is what you would do with anyone, and that's listed, right? We do that so well as nurse practitioners. Um, I, I think the best in terms of primary care. Um, so take the time to listen. Um, know that, that you got you to gotta work in that sexual health history and you got to do it frequently the way you can. But also like know that if your patient is there, they're going to trust you more. If you're like, yep, I get that your knee hurts and you're for some reason really worried about cholesterol, even though the numbers are perfect. Let's talk about that, why you're worried about it. And then you can get to the sexual health, right? Like if you're just jumping right in with the sexual health stuff, sometimes they're a little like, okay, like I don't, that's not why I'm here. I don't like this guy. You know, the, I think Dr. Farley made a really good point about that too. You know, you can do, say all of the right things, use all the right pronouns, have the best conversation in the world. And then if someone walks out of your clinic and you're a receptionist, misgenders them game over here's how you ask what someone's pronouns are you just ask right don't have to be scared and write it down and be like okay i don't want to get your pronouns wrong so i wrote it down people love that it's great right the only other thing i'll add to and this is sort of based on the evidence if you will if you are in communities and you really are trying to sort of actively court queer individuals particularly queer individuals of color and say i'm a safe place for you to come get your care that often is not done in the typical fashion. Advertisements on websites, bus boards, billboards, pamphlets, things like that don't always necessarily work. Trusted individuals do. So you may go a lot further in identifying who is a trusted community resource. I have a lived Black queer experience. So if you go to someone in your community who is a trusted source in, my, in the Black queer community, and you're like, hey, I really want to provide care to the community, and you become good with that person or a minister in a church that's really open, right? Or the owner of a club or something like that, then word spreads. Then all of a sudden everyone's like, hey, you can go to Dr. Farley's office because he's super cool and his staff is great. And he's going to, he's going to bug you about all these people that you're sleeping with, but he's also going to take really good care of that knee and that cholesterol and all of these other things, right? And make sure I got my second monkeypox vaccine, like all the things. So it may require a little bit of a different approach in terms of uh, being with with the communities you're trying to serve. Yeah, I agree. We, the one thing we do in terms of community engagement that works really well here in Baltimore is we work with a lot of community health workers. And our community health workers absolutely engage in HIV testing. They engage in uh, prep counseling, prep referrals. They can engage in a variety of point of care tests here in Maryland. And so we will often task shift, you know, if a client needs HIV testing, hepatitis C testing, syphilis testing, we do a variety of different point of care tests through our community health worker models. And that helps to save me time in the visit. And I know what's going to happen when the patient's in the room, because if we've got a new diagnosis, we can address that quickly. We also have flipped over one other thing from a sexual health perspective, and you'd be surprised how many patients want to do this, to allow self-swabbing 
if we're doing STI swabs in our in our clinical practice. So a patient comes in and they may have a need for uh, three body site screening for chlamydia, gonorrhea and, and the like. So I'll give them the option, their own autonomy. Would you like me to swab your throat, your penis and your rectum, or would you like to do those yourself? And they get some autonomy in the exam process themselves. So I think there are a variety of ways you can you can make it a comfortable, warm environment. As a nurse practitioner, this has been so interesting to learn these things about the ways to incorporate the sexual health history, but it's so important to treat the whole person, as you said, and to listen, like NPs really do so well. And also, it's important to provide the staff education, which is a great point that you made. It's wonderful if the providers understand, but if our staff are not speaking that same language, it can be a challenge. And you mentioned the self-swabbing. It's interesting because we've started letting our patients do this, and it was really a change for them, um, and they got used to it, but it truly does involve them in their care. So tell me, what are your thoughts on how to incorporate education on sexual health in queer patients during nurse practitioner education and training? Is this currently happening? I think I know this answer. (laughs) Uh, I I would say we had a PhD student at our school who did a complete curriculum mapping of our LGBTQ content. And basically through that mapping, uh, identified that there may have been in the entire nurse practitioner program two, possibly two and a half hours of total content in their entire NP program. And it was content that was buried with other sexual health related content. So it might've been a slide or two, unless you took, of course, my elective course, which has 40 hours worth of great content in in sexual and gender minority health, but, but they were looking at the core curriculum. So when we dug into that, they actually put together a task force within our school to say, we've got to fix this issue because if diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging are part of the core tenets, we believe nurse practitioners should, should bring to the table. We need to be able to do that for sexual and gender minority communities. And so a complete curriculum mapping, revamping and restructuring has led to, I think we're up to six to eight hours of content now, woefully still less than what it was needed, but much larger than most NP programs, I believe. That's fantastic, Dr. Farley. I mean, that's great. In sort of a broader picture, so if we're telling the audience of folks who are listening to this are like, okay, but I'm at a small nursing school in Nevada. Like, I don't have the resources of Johns Hopkins or a PhD who wants to spend their time doing this, right? What do I do? You have to have an approach in understanding how the queer and, and all the letters inside of it queer patient is a specialized patient that has specialized needs, just like any other patient. So you need to understand the intersection of, we talk a lot about like cultural competencies in nursing. And so understanding why, you know, what's the classic one we always talk about? Why people who practice Jehovah's Witness don't want blood, right? That comes up all the time. Okay. We've all heard that ad nauseum. That's great. But it's really woven into when we start to understand appreciation of different cultural nuances of the intersections of things like heart failure and kidney disease, right? There are very specific ways that we have instituted those things and made them a part of our curriculum. So I would tell, you know, I'm speaking to the audience here who's maybe interested in this. You you need to reach out to the Dr. Farley's of the world who have an an NP fellowship in queer health, reach out to them and say, Hey, what we don't want to recreate the wheel. We also don't necessarily have these resources. We don't want you to do all the work for us, but can you get us in the right direction? I 100% agree that we should all reach out to the experts. And you've mentioned 
other healthcare conditions. And I want to mention HIV, which often interacts and intersects with other health conditions, such as sexually transmitted infections, substance abuse disorders, or mental health conditions. These interactions are referred to as syndemics. So how can we as primary care providers work collaboratively with other healthcare providers to address syndemic conditions in queer patients? Well, first, I think, you know, most importantly is, is assessing for them and identifying them. You know, the general epidemiology of the queer community, uh, there's a higher prevalence of issues associated with access for certain populations. So, so delayed care seeking because of, you know, concerns of stigma discrimination. So when you look, we may present, that translates into presenting late to care for an HIV diagnosis, for example, not coming into care for, a, for pre-exposure prophylaxis for prevention. So, so all of those things together, when you look at that nexus, so that kind of Venn diagram of overlapping syndemics, um, means that our care may not be, may not receive the same outcomes as an individual who is cisgendered and, and more heteronormative uh, in their, in their um, background. So I think the first thing to do is to understand for your community, if in your patient population, how do they identify themselves? Just like Dr. Simmons was saying, what are their pronouns? What do they view themselves as a cisgender or transgender? Do they view themselves as gay, bisexual, queer? How, how do they identify in a variety of different sexual health categories? But then understanding how that, how they believe that identity may influence their, the other things in their life. So many of our patients come in for general primary care issues, and those are wonderful opportunities to address uh, their sexual health care needs as well. You know, we're going to get to some more of the, the resources from the CDC in general and the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign, but there, the CDC does have really great resources about this and sort of uh, one way of an approach to take on syndemics with our patients. So syndemic meaning two more than one epidemic together, that person's housing uh, may be an issue, their income may be an issue, their socioeconomic status may be an issue for them to access other types of care. And if they're part of a population who is at higher risk, like Dr. Farley said, you got to take that time, that chance to, to screen for some other stuff, right? The syphilis explosion billboards that we're seeing everywhere, or the super gonorrhea that no one can stop asking me about. Like all these things that are going on right now are syndemics. Monkeypox last summer, along with individuals who have HIV, is like a perfect example. And so wherever this person is accessing care, if people are in your clinic and you got 15 and a half minutes, you, you got to go for it. You got to talk to them about all of these things, because that may be one of the only times that they're actually accessing care and you can sort of point them in the right direction, if that makes sense. I agree, late and delayed care, no matter what the health condition, leads to poorer outcomes. It's great that the CDC provides so many resources. We also need to understand their social determinants of health, which is kind of what you were referring to before. And you made a great point, not just primary care providers, but all health care providers, including specialists, need to understand and be sensitive to the needs of queer patients. Uh, you mentioned HIV. We know that the HIV diagnosis occurs disproportionately um, higher in Black or African American and Latino populations, particularly among gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. So can you talk a bit more about this health disparity in your work at the intersection of the LGBTQIA plus 
and Black and Latino communities. For example, the data shows that out of all the diagnoses of HIV infection in 2021 attributed to male-to-male sexual contact, 37% were Black and 33% were Hispanic or Latino, the highest percentages of any other racial group. Sure. When we see that approximately you know, 15, 16% of the U.S. population identify as Black or African-American, and yet 42% of all new diagnoses uh, are, are represented uh, among the Black or African-American community. That's what we really mean about a disparity, right? That where the disease in your population, given your population proportion in the United States, is overrepresented in the people being determined. What we see is uh, extremely disparate proportional risk uh, based on population size for the numbers of new diagnoses for HIV. And so across the US, we have seen a decline in HIV diagnoses. That's been great. Our youth have seen the greatest amount of decline in the last several years. So the new 2022 data from the CDC um, does show about a 34% reduction in, in our folks younger than the age of 30. That's really great news. And it's mostly because they're accessing pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP or are on HIV treatment and their viral load is suppressed uh, called U equals U or treatment as prevention. Meaning once we get them undetectable, whether in primary care or specialty care, if they're undetectable, they cannot transmit that virus onto someone else. So what we do in our work is we have a status neutral approach. So it doesn't matter if you're living with HIV or you're living uh, without HIV, we have sexual health services. So if we do a community outreach event, for example, it doesn't matter if you already know you're living with HIV, you come in and get tested for HIV. Again, we, are, we, we welcome that, we encourage that because that way you're not the one member of your group or your friends who's out there and they're going, nah, okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, where everyone else is like signing up for testing because that means they make assumptions about you standing there waiting for testing uh, about your status. And so we offer testing regardless of known positive or negative um, to try to make sure people who are HIV positive, for example, get into care. So when we're privately doing that HIV test and they disclose to us, hey, I already know I'm HIV positive. I just didn't want my friends to you know, see me denying, decline the test, which happens quite frequently, frankly, when you're in the community. Um, then we have a conversation about, are you engaged in care? Can, you, can we help you get re-engaged in care if you're not there? The ability to really have a status neutral approach. You don't care if someone's living with HIV or if someone's um, looking for HIV prevention. doesn't matter. You can provide uh, those services. And today I would leave you know, with you with this one thought. It is easier in primary care to treat HIV, the first line treatment for HIV in a newly diagnosed patient than it is to treat your patient who is newly diagnosed with diabetes. If you look at the way you titrate and use metformin and it's you know, multi-pill response and how we you know, focus on that hemoglobin A1C, you know, you're talking about a multi-pill regimen most likely by the time you get that patient's A1C uh, to in your appropriate levels for that patient. Whereas in HIV, we're talking about a single tablet regimen. It's one pill once a day, and we will get them virally suppressed generally within six to eight weeks. You're really talking about something. If you feel comfortable, you know, first line management of diabetes, you should feel equally comfortable today in primary care with first line management of HIV. I feel like I'm at church, Dr. Farley. I'm back here like, <laughs> amen. Come on, preacher. Yes, sir. Keep it going. Like, y'all listen to, so Dr. Farley is going to give you all that and all the information, and I love it. I'm going to give you a little bit, I'm going to just reemphasize a couple of those points. 
I think as clinicians, we really, really have to believe in our hearts and know that the science is true and the science is sound about you equals you. Undetectable equals untransmittable. You equals you. If you are someone who is living with HIV and through whatever medication regimen, most folks are on a single pill a day or two or a pill twice a day. If you get that viral load to do undetectable, meaning in a blood test, we can't find your, we, our, your viral load comes up as undetectable, negligible. You cannot transmit HIV to somebody else, full stop. A lot of clinicians don't know that. Most humans on earth don't know that, right? If you're in the work that Dr. Farley and I are doing, of course, we, we run around and we scream this and we yell it a lot of the times. But if you as a clinician don't know this in your primary care practice, how are you then educating your patients about this? So it is on us. You know, what is the question here? How do we, what can NPs do to help prevent and treat HIV in these communities? Get educated, even if it's by listening to this podcast. And then what you realize after listening to this podcast is that, oh, it's actually not that scary, right? And I can take some couple of courses. I can, you know, reach out to a few folks. I can get educated. It can be a part of my CMEs. And all of a sudden I'm caring for folks who have HIV in my community and in my practice. And because we're doing the status neutral approach, right? We are addressing HIV with everyone. Is how I like to think about it. Regardless of their status, we're just addressing HIV with everyone. If someone is HIV negative and they're sexually active, you can get them on PrEP, which at least in the United States, the way we prescribe this right now, if it's orally, it's a pill a day. Take pill a day, 95 to 99% effective at preventing HIV through sexual contact. About 75 to 80% effective at preventing HIV through the sharing of needles. Wow. And then there's a shot you can take every other month that is 97 to 99% effective at preventing HIV through sex. So it's really that easy. It's amazing to hear about the success and improvements in HIV care over the years. Amazing to hear how easy it's become. And you're right. We are really taught well in school, in practice about diabetes management, but HIV treatment I think we do need to be taught more about it. We need to do our own education and research or utilize the AANP. What resources are available from the CDC's Let's Stop HIV Together to really assist NPs in their uptake of HIV-related services for screening, treatment, and specialty care? So it's, you can just Google CDC Nexus, N-E-X-U-F, Okay or cdc.gov slash HIV slash clinicians. That'll take you to the nexus as well. It's a one-stop location for information across the HIV prevention and care continuum. So all this stuff that Dr. Farley and I just like wrapped up for you in like three minutes, all of that's there, including the research, including all of the references, including where this comes from, including all of the different, there's 14,000 studies that we've done. I mean, 14,000 is my number, not really. But there are a lot of studies that we've done about why you equals you, um, is science backed, right? Why we understand that what these one pill a day regimens look like, what prep looks like in different communities, why the pill over the shot, right? All of those different things. You can dig into that. And of course, none of our patients live in a vacuum and none of our patients have just one issue, right? Everyone's got 14,000 comorbidities. So I think one of the things that's really most helpful for me on this CDC nexus is, okay, I have a transgender patient who might, may or may not be on hormone therapy, who also has heart failure and type 2 diabetes and is HIV positive, and they really want to start like Victarvi, okay, like what do I do? How do I go about this? Right? Feels a little overwhelming. Those information and those resources are right there for you at CDC Nexus. Thank you so much, Dr. Simmons. These are amazing resources. Dr. Farley, I know you'd like to add your thoughts as well. If everything we've said today hasn't like 
persuaded you to start doing HIV prevention or HIV care in your practice, I will tell you that um, when you when you really start to think about this, you've got the resources, you've got folks you can reach out to, but also just from a, a practical standpoint as busy primary care providers, your prep patient comes in to see you every 90 days, and it is literally one of the easiest possible appointments you could have in your primary care clinic. It is very quick, easy, straightforward. There's nothing complicated about it. And it's usually a level three, if not level four, depending on you know how well you document for every encounter. And they are true, true 15 minute encounters that probably can often be done in 10 minute encounters. For your, for your HIV patients, I, we are now moving into a space that that is very similar. I will tell you that almost every single patient I am treating with HIV today, HIV is the quickest part of our visit. It is the chronic comorbidities that we're really addressing, and it's all the bread and butter of primary care. It is that diabetes and high blood pressure and cholesterol and all those things that we address and are so good at. And literally we, we go, oh, yep, one pill once a day, still doing right. Any side effects, doing well, great. Any adherence problems, no, great. Okay, viral load's undetectable, CD4 counts, great. Moving on to the rest of your multiple things. It's literally that easy. So I would encourage you to, to seek your resources, look at HIV Nexus, um, check out, you know, contact either one of us. We're happy to, to, to touch base with you. You're learning from the best. So take, please take to heart what Dr. Farley has said and these resources and reach out if, if you need to. I, I can't stress that enough. Well, I'm inspired by you both. Your expertise, your enthusiasm and energy are really so infectious. You've really simplified HIV care and it's so important to treat our queer patients very holistically. Thank you for being here, for sharing your expertise and for being open to our audience to reach out to you as experts and as resources. And certainly uh, the resources that the CDC provides in their Let's Stop HIV Together program um, sound amazing. So the CDC HIV Nexus and Let's Stop HIV Together, I think are wonderful. And I encourage all of our listeners to check those out. Thank you so much to both of you for taking your time to be here um, and to join us on NP Pulse. Thank you so much for joining us, James and Jason, and thank you all who are listening. As NPs continue working to provide a more inclusive primary care experience for patients, AANP is so pleased to offer a variety of resources designed to support your success. Visit the AANP CE Center to complete continuing education activities on a variety of related topics, or navigate to aanp.org, where you can access lots of clinical resources and join one or more of the AANP communities to exchange information with other NPs on healthcare equity, diversity, and inclusion, or dozens of other specialty practice and interest topics. Finally, I really encourage you to make an investment in yourself next month by attending the 2023 AANP Fall Conference located in Austin, Texas, where you can earn up to 18 contact hours of CE credit and connect with NPs from all over the country. 
Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues and check back regularly for new topics. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Thank <laughs> you.